Welcome to Shoot Wisely, the content creator's podcast. I'm your host, Amir Brahimi. With over 25 years of production experience, as a documentarian, my cameras have taken me across this country and around this amazing world, capturing and telling stories. The Shoot Wisely podcast is a conversation with fellow storytellers with the goal to inspire. In today's episode, we talk to Suitcase Joe, a street photographer who has been documenting the LA Skid Row area for over seven years and prefers to remain anonymous. This is our conversation. Joe, I really appreciate you giving us your time and talking about this project. First and foremost, why do you want to remain anonymous? The main reason that I, I have decided to remain anonymous is, is I think that we're in a day and age where a lot of people are very much about you know, promoting themselves or even when they're helping others, they, they really try to turn that attention inward uh, and they make it about them. And Suitcase Joe and my photos, you know, as far as like the social network platform of it is, is there for, for the people uh, who live on the streets of Skid Row to tell their stories and for their photos to be taken, for the world to hear it from them. Uh, it's not about me. It's about them. I'm just kind of a conduit for them. Yeah, I mean, I, I assume that, you know, it, when you're doing a job like this, the last thing you want to feel is that you're exploiting these people. Yeah, I, I go to uh, great lengths to, to make it not feel that way. Um, yeah. I think, I think there are people who do things similar to what I do, and, and it can be very, you know, exploitive, and there's ways to not do it. And it's a fine line, you know, and it was something that in the beginning I also – I don't think that I got it perfect right away. Not that I necessarily have it perfect now, but my intentions were always to never be that way, you know, but I definitely had to fine tune some things along the way. So you said in the beginning, so let, let's start with the beginning. How, first of all, where are you from? Uh, I'm from all over and nowhere in particular. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in, in the beginning, I, um, so I had this idea of, I've always loved street photography. I've always loved writing, reading, you know, and I would, I would always, and I was fascinated with Skid Row. I'm also very fascinated with, with, with old like hobo culture and all of these things sort of mixed in for me. And I'd look at Skid Row and I'd go there and I would, I had friends who, who were actual real photographers and I'd be like, Hey, you guys should document Skid Row. No one's like really doing it. I've seen some people kind of do it. It's like, but no one's like really document it. And they'd be like, yeah, you're crazy. You know, we're not going to go into Skid Row. There's a reason for that, Joe. Yeah. So as it just kind of hit me one day, like, well, you're the one who's so fascinated with it. Why don't you go in there, you know, and take photos? And I, I started doing that. And I was like, I wanted to kind of archive it historically really better than anyone had ever done. So I started going down there uh, and I was terrified. I really was going in Skid Row in the beginning. I was not comfortable I didn't go too far in. Um, I just started slowly going back more and more. But what started happening as I, I would push myself to go in further and to meet somebody, you know, and to just try to make myself a familiar face in the neighborhood. And um, I started just becoming, you know, making real friendships down there, which over the years really started to, to kind of bloom into their what they are today, but I, I didn't really realize that was happening along the way. Again, I, I just went there. I wanted to just, you know, I wanted to be like a documentarian. I wanted to photograph the neighborhood and the people, but I just, these relationships grew. And as I started to, to grow these relationships, you know, they went from being people I took photos of to my friends. And then they really started to open up to me. And then I started to learn so much about a lot of disenfranchised people and what leads them to that place in life. And I just, as I learned more of that, that's when I was like, these, you know, these are really great people. And a lot of them were born into bad circumstances and they were never given a lot of opportunities. And, you know, it just kind of shuffled them all in this, this one direction. And as I started to have this understanding of it, I just became completely invested in Skid Row in a whole different way that just, you know, it is what it is today. What were you shooting uh, up until that point? Um, on what camera? No, 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 no. Like what, what were you taking pictures of before oh. that you said you like? Yeah, I, I didn't really take photos. I mean, I, I would with friends and like, I never took it seriously. And I always liked, uh, again, I always loved street photography, 
but I never, um, I never thought of myself as a photographer, you know, it wasn't just, it just wasn't something that I, I, I did, or I did in, in a way that was like trying to get my photos out there. I was just another person who took photos of whatever. Is that because you said you had a lot of photographer friends? No, I just, I just, for some reason in my brain was never like, Hey, you could take photos. Right. You, you're, you could be a photographer. And I would also see when people would take photos in my head, I'd be like, Oh, I, I think the photos should look this way. You know, like mm-hmm. I had an idea of how I thought they should look and how it should be done. And again, I don't, you know, it's just one of those things that sometimes is right in front of your face and you don't, you don't realize it until, until you realize it. And you're like, Oh, it was there all along. It should be yeah. me. I, I can do this, you know, so it just kind of all clicked together for me. But but were you taking street portraits at that point, or you, you literally just started at Skid Row? Oh, I started in, in Skid Row. Wow, man. Yeah. And when you first started, what were you shooting with? I actually, I, the very first handful of photos I shot, I just shot on my phone. Right. <laughs> and and, and uh, I quickly graduated to a, a, a Ricoh. The, the mm-hmm. little street photography camera. I think it was like the Rico Two. It's a cool little camera. I still have it. Um, and then uh, you know now I just have a handful of different cameras I shoot on. Um, yeah, I no no uh, never never thought I would become a street photographer. That was never like something that as I was growing up thought I would be. And what was that first connection? What was that first connection that you made? I mean, maybe it was somebody that remembered you or, or when, when did you realize that you were accepted? Well, I was about a year into shooting down there and I had, I'd been meeting people, but I hadn't really. And you been. said you've been shooting for five years, right? So you've been documenting down there for five years. Now I might be close to seven. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. But there's uh, six or seven. But uh, so there's a, a guy named Crucio who I'm still really good friends with. Uh, he's in the book. Um, I went to Skid Row one day, and this is when I started to push myself deeper in. So I started at the very beginning, and I walked all the way. Uh, Skid Row borders downtown L.A., and that's called the bottom mm-hmm. and if you're in Skid Row. Uh, it's just kind of the terms inside of the neighborhood. And if you go all the way up to Central, where it touches Central, that's the top. So I walked all the way to the top, and I saw this guy wa- washing his dogs. And I went over to him, and I was like, hey um, – can I take uh, some, some photos of you, you know, give you some money, blah, blah, blah. And he basically looked at me like, no, like get the hell out of here. And uh, he's like washing two pit bulls and, and he's, he looks scary to me. And uh, in my own personal fashion, uh, I didn't leave because I never leave. <laughs> I never like, I was like, well, I'll move out of your area, but I'm not leaving because uh, I was really determined to, you know, just kind of push myself past my own comfort zone. And yeah. I milled about for a while and uh, he just saw me and he was like, he's like, Hey, come here. <laughs> he's like, <laughs> he's like, what? He's like, what the hell are you doing? And I was like, you know, I'm, I'm suitcase Joe. I'm, I'm out here. I'm, I'm, I'm just documenting the neighborhood. I'm trying to get to know people. You know, I just, I showed him some of the photos that I already had. And I, he basically was like, all right, your intentions seem cool. Uh, and he, he let me take a photo of him. But then I stayed and hung out with him for like three or four hours. Right. Um, and while I was there, you know, people were coming by saying hi to him. And then they're seeing me with him. If you're hanging out with Crucio, Crucio's somebody who's very well known in Skid Row. He's one of like people who everybody Do you know what page knows. he's on? No, I got I to gotta see who Crucio is. Um, I don't have a book in front of me. But um, he has uh, he has a couple pages. He's in the back holding up the little girl. That's his daughter. Um, yeah, but so Crucio, Crucio and I became friends and I started going down there all the time. That's Crucio. That's one of his photos. Yeah. And, um, and we just, I would go down there, you know, I wouldn't even go down there with my camera. I'd just go hang out on the corner with Crucio and talk to him because he's a super fascinating guy. He's like, he's an artist and he's also, he used to be a really big drug dealer in Skid Row for many years and then he stopped selling drugs and he turned his life around and became a slam ball, a professional slam ball player, which is like a, you know, a form of basketball for those who don't know. And then he became an artist. He started really putting a lot into his art. And then he, he's become like a, a skid row, like community activist. Now he's part of all these nonprofits. He brings kids down there to walk them through there. And, uh, Crucio and I just hit it off and Crucio basically 
me being friends with Crucial, he started introducing me to people, or they'd be like, oh, Joe's hanging out with Crucial, he's good. And then that just started extended family through him. I would meet people, and I'd go hang out with them. I'd become friends with them. They would introduce me to more people. It took years, but now, you know, there's a lot of people down there who know me. I'm a familiar face, you know. I'm, I'm more part of the neighborhood now than I was back then. And where does his name Suitcase Joe come from? Uh, it just comes from, I mean... I gave myself the name in the fashion of like, uh, you know, hobos would give themselves monikers. Nobody went by their real name because they were all anonymous, you know. And, yeah. and again, it's just something I've, I've been deeply fascinated with train hopping and, and that culture for as long as I can remember. And I, I just wanted an anonymous name and, you know, I like to travel a lot and keep it light. And I was like, ah, Suitcase Joe. Yeah, so, it's a great name, man. Thanks. You know, for... I, uh, I, um, I grew up in San Francisco until I was about 21. And then I spent the next, uh, 18 years of my life in New York and now I'm in LA. So, you know, for me growing up, Skid Row was kind of a saying, um, but like our Skid Row in San Francisco wasn't really called Skid Row. It was the Tenderloin. And then yeah. New York had a Skid Row, which was the Bowery. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, you know, when I came to LA, it was the first time I actually saw a sign that said Skid Row. LA Skid Row is the Skid Row. Yeah. It's. And they pushed to actually have it recognized as its own neighborhood because it's always been considered a, a part of just downtown. But they wanted to make it an official neighborhood. And uh, I think they finally have done that. But Skid Row's been around for, I think, a little over 100 years now. I mean, it's it's not new. Right. Um, and it's been called Skid Row. From what I know, it's it's where the um, a lot of people worked on on trains you know they were mm -hmm. like basically your your hard work in blue collar underpaid guys so they would work on the train and and then just kind of spend their money in whatever town they were and it kept on going down the line and then it ended you know they finished ending the trains in skid row it's like the end of the skids skid row was the end of the row so all these kind of you know working class guys a lot of them were big drinkers and stuff just that's basically where they were let out and that, that started Skid Row. And back then it was like brothels and, and places where you could gamble. Um, you know, there was already some soup kitchen kitchens there. So it was just kind of rife for like the, the world's colliding and, and starting it really becoming this still what it is today, which is, you know, one of the largest houseless communities in America. Now the, the Skid Row in, in the Bowery in New York is pretty non-existent. Uh, today and San Francisco tenderloin has kind of always been the tenderloin but um here in LA it just seems like Skid Row if anything is is growing yeah well <clears throat> it's it's definitely it's been there for a long time I I think I read something that said around like 1930 that there was already 10,000 10,000 um you know houseless people in Skid Row so it's mm. it's it's not new, but it's not new in being really big, but it, it's definitely imploded. And they just put out. I just read the statistic the other day that said uh, because of the pandemic, thirty six thousand LA households could become houseless in the next um, six months, and that's yeah. not counting the number of people that live in these houses. So Skid Row already has anywhere from you know, depending on who you get the report from, 10 to 14,000 people there. It could, it could very well triple in population, just that community, and really soon. And, uh, I mean, I think it's going to happen all across America because of the pandemic, but I think Skid Row itself is going to become, I think it's going to turn into something we've never seen there before, even for Skid Row. People tend to think of Skid Row as, as, a, as, a, as a housing issue, but um, how much of it is a, is a mental health issue? Well, I think the majority of um, our houseless population across America is mental health. It's uh, a third of the houseless community does have mental health issues like PTSD, schizophrenia, depression. Um, and, and that's the thing. And I'm glad you brought that up because this is something that I always want to talk to people about or just inform them. Because a lot of people like to say, you know, oh, they're drug addicts. They're just a bunch of drug addicts. And a lot of them are drug addicts. Uh, but a lot of them are drug addicts because they're 
dealing with mental health issues that they cannot get help for because of the facilities that we do not have ever since Reagan shut all that down. So you have all these people who unfortunately will never be able to house themselves. They'll never be able to fully function and hold down a job. They're just never going to be those, you know, contributing members to society in the way that people want them to be. And what we need for that is is just understanding and then to create facilities to help take care of them. Just, you know, there's there's no no other honest solution to it. I mean, there are other factors, you're right. You know, the housing crisis is one. There are other people who are down there for other reasons, but but that that alone, if if we took it more seriously and created uh, actual facilities and programs to really to look literally look after these people and take care of them the way they need to be, then the numbers of our street would be greatly reduced all over the United States. And and this yeah, it's just it's always so frustrating to hear people continually, you know, kind of complain about it, but they don't really understand the issue. And they're not attacking it correctly. I, there are people I've met, too, who are, um, you know, they were in the military or just your regular kind of guy that we would think of, you know, your regular man or woman who has your, just a job. And they, and they got hurt, like in a car accident. And then they were given, uh, like, Oxycontin through the hospital. Yeah. And then they developed these serious addictions for it. And they either get off the drug with that addiction or they're... Or, they stopped getting it, but they're still in pain. And what is the cheap street drug that is Oxycontin and that, you know, helps people get over these pains or continues your addiction? It's heroin or Oxycontin that you can buy for so cheap. It's dirt cheap to buy. And right. that's how you end up having doctors, lawyers, people you would not believe. I see them down there. They're buying drugs. They're doing them, you know. Right. Their walls are different and they're in, in the way that they're perceived in the world is different, but they're down there too, and they're doing the same things. Some of them, you know, descend all the way to living on the street. Some of them do a better job of, of functioning, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's the, the opiates um, and, and are, that are basically being handed out in our hospitals are just, they're creating a lot of problems too. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting because, for me, as a photographer, what, what's really powerful about photography is the ability to take an image that communicates with the future. And I think that's what you're talking about with like documenting. You know, you take this image and people 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 years from now can look at this image and, you know, you're communicating with them. <clears throat> but, you know, like in particular, this image right here, which when I bought the book, it was, it was uh, a pleasant surprise that it came with it. Oh yeah, this Mel. image. What's that? That's Mel. He's like seventy-two hey, years old. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This image right here um, is more connecting with the past. You know, because when I look at this image, I mean, maybe you know the uh, the the meter is is dated, and you know, I think there's oddly enough, like it looks like a a stretched SUV limo or a stretched Hummer limo in between his legs, but you could barely see it. But other than that, you know, this image could have been taken in the '30s. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely what grabbed me about Mel that day when I saw him. Um, and honestly, it's, it's all by chance because all that, you know, all that clothes was donated to him. So he just happened to be wearing something that day that it really struck me the way he looked. But, um, but, you know, he's also been there. I think Mel's been there for 40 years and, uh, he's in his seventies. He has like nine siblings. Um, so, you know, he kind of is from the past and the present as far as Skid Row goes. So, you know, I live downtown and, you know, I, I went through the pandemic and, and the lockdown. And, and the one thing that struck me was thinking about these people that live on the streets and, you know, especially somebody with mental health issues. And, you know, their their world is already you know, Mad Max, whatever you want to call it. It's, it's already just, an, it's already tumultuous enough. But then you got the pandemic and, you know, just, just go down the list with me here. You have the pandemic and everybody disappears and all the stores close and no, nobody's around. Then, you know, you have um, the protests and all of a sudden there's people all over the place. They're all over the streets. They're making all kinds of noise. And then all of a sudden there's 
the quote unquote riots. Then there's, um, you know, all hell breaks loose. And then all of a sudden you see the National Guard. Like, I can't imagine what somebody with mental health or even somebody with, with the right state of mind living on the streets, like, they must have thought the world was coming to an end. Like, they must have thought it was between, you know, the, with the Walking Dead and Blade Runner. And, and, like, so, you know, you, I can see in your, your Instagram that you, you, you were well documenting during that time. Oh, what yeah. did the pandemic and the lockdown do to Skid Row? <clears throat> well, uh, a lot and nothing at the same time. Um, right. So I went to Skid Row when the pandemic was, you know, we went on our lockdown here. And uh, I was going around asking people, you know, do you guys, what are you guys doing? You wearing masks? And I, literally having people come out of their tent saying, what are you, what is, what is the coronavirus? What are you talking about? And I was like, what? <laughs> You're, you guys don't know? And a lot of people down there literally had no idea about it. While the outside world, we are going on lockdown. People are not leaving yeah. their homes. And I actually have made some, some friends in the news now through what I do. And I just called them up. I just filmed some people down there and they put it on the news for me, which, you know, it, it luckily brought some attention down there and, and they started putting up signs and passing out information. But there's a lot of people who come down there. There's some great people who come down to, to Skid Row and, you know, they pass out uh, hygiene kits, clothes, sleeping bags, food, etc. And they've been coming there forever. And this is why Skid Row, there's so many people that go to Skid Row is because uh, in... I think in 75, they created the Policy of Containment Act, which was to put all these resources close to each other because that's where the bigger problem was. And all it did was create a bigger problem, more people going there. Okay, so you have all these people. In and when Skid you say Row. resources, just so people know, it's like soup kitchens, maybe like uh, yes. needle missions. Yes, yeah. needle exchange, okay. yes. And on top of that, you know, you've got a lot of, yeah, these groups, nonprofits and churches and whoever decides to come down there. And... Yeah. If you're living Skid Row, the one thing about living in Skid Row is you do not starve. Um, there's plenty of people to bring you food. But people who live down there have kind of come to rely on that. So when the pandemic hit, nobody was coming down there. Literally nobody. Like all the groups that were there, they just stopped coming. So the people in Skid Row, the, the mood, I just watched it slowly start to decline and darken. You know, and people were even saying things. They would all, all of a sudden, everybody was like, I'm hungry, Joe. Like, you know, I was buying people food, but I was like, I can't do enough. This is how the Suitcase Joe right. Foundation was born much earlier than I had anticipated. Yeah, so a lot of people stopped going down there. And then again, yeah, we, Suitcase Joe Foundation was kind of born out of that. We started going down there and, you know, handing out things that we could to the community, like basically food and water and clothing and tents. Uh, and then after several months, you know, a lot of people did did start to return, and you know, they're back there in full swing now. A lot of these nonprofits. But the other thing I, I think I was saying, um, was that, you know, as far as the virus hitting, a lot of people in Skid Row, I, we would bring down masks. I would get so many masks donated and hand them out, and other other people down there were doing the same thing, helping out. And I would I would see you know, residents, street residents. And I'd be like, why are you guys wearing your mask? And they'd be like, ah, whatever. Like it's either not real. Some of them would take it seriously, but a lot of them would be like, you know, we've lived through crack. We've lived through AIDS. We've lived through everything down here. Like you guys are freaking out. Like we're in survival mode all the time. Yeah. And until, until we're really seeing it, it's not really here. And, um, you know, and then as far as like, like when Trump, you know, got elected, I was down there and I was like, Hey, how are you guys feeling about this? You know, are you guys upset? And they're just like, no, like <laughs> it doesn't matter who, who the president is. They never care about us. Like, these are your problems. These aren't problems of the people we live inside of Skid Row, you know, right or left. A lot of people down there are just like, we're, we get the, we get the short end regardless. And then even with the, a lot of the BLM protests, I was like, you guys, how are you feeling about this? You know, you guys want to get involved? And they're like, no, like they're over there. They don't, they don't, those protests skirted Skid Row. They never came into Skid Row. And people from Skid Row are like, 
those guys are going to get in trouble. We already have enough trouble here. We're not joining that. And I'm yeah. and Skid Row is a world inside of itself. You know, it's got mm-hmm. its own politics. It's got its own flow of life. Uh, it's got its own heartbeat. And I, I'm always fascinated by it. You know, I'm always kind of humbled and reminded that it is its own world. And a lot of things that affect us out here, it affects it. It's different there. You know, it's yeah. similar, but it's always different. Right. So <clears throat> you're obviously a man of compassion. And, I, you know, me personally, I, I do a lot of profiles on people. And whenever I, I work with somebody, um, it kind of accelerates this relationship that I have with them. And no matter who it is, if I worked on, on, a, on a project about somebody 10, 15 years ago, you know, I could call them up right now and, and, and you know, we're like good friends, you know. And, and right. you know, they affect me as much as I affect them. And, and it can happen in this short amount of time because we have this intense, you know, relationship. And I have like, whenever I'm working with somebody, just like I am with you right now, I have like this, this amazing uh, past to just ask you a bunch of questions. That being said, how do you not let a lot of these stories um, affect you to the point where it's crippling? Um, I don't know. I get asked that a lot. I mean, it bothers me to the point of igniting me to do something about it. But I think I'm just of the personality and belief that, like, you know, boohooing about something doesn't really get you anywhere. But rolling up your sleeves and getting to work certainly does. And and again, I, I, I it comes back to me for seeing a lot of people. They like to complain about stuff or they like to even gripe about the way you might be going about it. But a lot of those people aren't the ones who are are getting down in there and doing the work that needs to be done. Uh, So I've just kind of made that decision. You know, someone's got to someone's got to do it. It needs to be done. Why not me? And if I if I did allow those things to to deeply affect me in a way that it kind of would be crippling, I, I just wouldn't be able to to get that work done. And I don't, I don't know a ton of people that would be willing to do it. Um, I have had friends tell me like, you know, I might suffer some kind of post trauma from it or secondhand trauma, which, you know, it very well could be true, but I guess the trade off for me is it'll be worth it, you know, because I just, I want to be down there and I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to continue to be down there. Yeah, well, I think the thing is, is that you, um, your therapy or your way of dealing with it is is taking action. So, and if you're taking action, then you know I th- that is your way of dealing with it, as opposed to somebody that you know would be crippled by it. They wouldn't even have, you know, if they had that personality, they wouldn't even have taken that first photo in the first place, or or stood by, um, I forget his name, but stood by the guy with the pit bulls for for as long as you did. Um, you know, I, I don't think you wouldn't have, I, I don't think you'd get to where you are now. And the way that you're dealing with it is an extremely healthy way of dealing with it. It's an extremely resilient way of dealing with it. And it's a way of dealing with it that sparks conversation, that sparks this conversation. It sparks other people to do something. And even if somebody doesn't do anything and all they do is like the pictures on your, on your uh, Instagram and maybe, you know, write some type of um, encouraging comment, you know, that's, more than they can already handle, you know, so you're already presenting this in a way where you're, you're making a difference, you know, and, and, you know, it's not about like, Oh, how can I help and just give money? It's like, you're making a completely, uh, a big impact. So also too, man, I I really enjoy your writing. Um, it's one thing that I I really, I mean, I love taking pictures, but my writing is horrible. So anytime that somebody can take pictures (laughs) and they can write as well, it's, it's, um, it's amazing. So, I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and take Liberty and, and this is, uh, if anybody's following on his Instagram page, uh, this was his last post as of today was, is, uh, January 30th. I think this was your last post. And, um, it's an amazing image, uh, without, without any context or anything like that, you know? Um, and for me too, it's like, I'm not really one to critique an image in, in composition or lighting or whatever. It just, I'm simply like, do, do I get a certain type of feeling when any type of feeling, if I, if I look at an image and I get a feeling from it, you know, that, that is a striking image to me. And, and what we're, we're talking about right here is, is a post from January 30th. And I'm just going to read what uh, Suitcase Joe has here. For the many homesteaders who live and survive in Skid Row, heavy rains and cold nights are nothing new. An hour before the storm touched down, 
Most street residents were already holed up inside their tents while others made last-minute preparations, tying tarps over their homes and doing what they could to raise their bedding off the ground. Once the storm struck, Skid Row became a ghost town and the gutters overflowed into small rivers flooding out into the streets. The few bodies wandering about were seemingly those with mental health issues and those who were driven by purpose. Margaret's dog birthed a litter, pup, a litter of puppies, and the runt had passed. She was looking for someone who could take it and bury it for her. With few other options in Skid Row, it's quite normal for deceased pets to be discarded into the trash, but Margaret was determined to honor her dead more ceremoniously. Until she was able to give it to a proper send-off, she was keeping it in a shoebox in her tent. I was not able to offer her any help, and my suggestion of waiting until the storm had passed went unheard. The importance of giving her puppy a, a proper burial was a matter of dignity for Margaret, and I took a lesson from that. How, <clears throat> how we do anything is how we do everything, and it directly reflects how we feel about ourselves. Despite the evening's ungracious weather, none of that was lost on Margaret. So, you know, this is this is just such a powerful post and such such powerful world uh, words, and you know, it really takes us into um, into her world, and you know, it, it paints a very grim, but also. There's something very uplifting about it, you know. Well, there's something that 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 gives you get that gives you hope, you know, in in such a in such a like grim circumstance. Yeah, and it's 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 I I'm aware of it, I should say. Um, I mean, I I like writing, and I and that's definitely part of it. But when people see the folks who live in on the street, not just Skid Row. And and I, I have to say that myself at a time I was included in this because this is hardwired into the way that we were brought up and it's just, you know uh you know, you, you have a, a preconceived notion of people who live on the streets. And um and and Skid Row is a, a place where people do not want to go into because of these you know, the way they look at it is like those people they're not people they're those people and they live in those conditions but like i i want you to feel who they are i want to i want to rehumanize them for you and that's what i'm doing through my writing i'm giving you a little something about that person that is also just like you and just like everybody else i don't know where it happens or why it happens but something a divide you know is begins in our brains or it's taught to us i don't know i really don't know where the divide starts where you stop looking at people who live on the street like they're just other people they somehow become beneath or you know dastardly it's like you don't want to people don't want to look in their direction and and they don't want to um they don't want to associate with them they don't want to extend to themselves just the normal human kindnesses that we all want to like you know and these people down there, even even when it comes down to tents, how I look at them now is the way that I used to look at them. A tent is like going to my friend's house now. It's the same as your hard walls. They have thin nylon walls, but these are their homes, and this is their community. And and they all have relationships. They have lives going on, and they have feelings, and they're just acutely aware about the way they're being treated as we would be if somebody insulted us at work or in our friend circle, like it exists for them too, but they don't, they don't get that extended to them anymore. And they are aware of that too. That's one thing about being inside of Skid Row. When you're part of that community, they don't judge each other. It's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. They are so stripped down to just being out in the open with, with their flaws because they have them and their neighbors have them. I've never seen anything so beautiful in my life. This place teaches me lesson after lesson. And and through my writing, attaching it to my photos, you might you're seeing a face, but I want you to know something about this person and I want I want that to connect with you the way they the way I feel it when I'm speaking with them. Just the way you were talking about how connection is important to you. It's important to everybody and it's not lost yeah. on people just because they don't live inside of hard walls. Yeah. You know, the other thing, too, is I remember um, cause I've, 
I've had, I've, I've hit my hard times, you know, and, and like, you know, my immediate family have, has all passed away. I still have like extended family and I still have amazing friends, but Sorry to hear I'm that. not really one to sleep on someone's couch. Meaning like, I'm not really one to say like, Hey man, I need a place to stay tonight. You know? Right. So I remember we were driving, I think we were in Oakland at the time and my good friend's wife, she was like, you know, she was looking out and we see like, you know, 10 after 10 after 10. And she was just like, how does this happen? You know, how does this happen? And I was like, I'm a couple bad turns away from being one of those people. You know, you get, like you said, you get into an accident and all of a sudden you have this crazy medical bill. You right. can't pay it. Then you can't go to work. They give you some pills. You know, you start taking those pills. You, you spend one night on the bench. No big deal. You spend one night in a, par- in a bus stop. No big deal. Yeah. You're not a drinker, but you want to stay warm. You start drinking a little bit. You start drinking a little bit more and then that's not enough. And then all of a sudden, you know, you start not bathing, you start smelling a certain way, people start treating you a certain way, and then all of a sudden you start turning to people that don't treat you a certain way, and they become your family. Uh-huh. And, you know, when I told that to her, I was like, ah, that would never happen to you. And I was like, I hope not, yeah. you know? And then there's also, people don't realize the amazing lottery they won of just being born in a, in a household of people that love you. You, you couldn't have said it better. It, it, and that that extends to so many things. I mean, that extends to not just our houseless community, but even people born in America wanting to put up a border wall. I'm like you have had nothing to do with where you were born and what situation you were born into. Nothing at all, yeah. but be thankful if it was great or good. Um, yeah. And, and a lot of the folks in, in Skid Row, and this is something else I, I you know, I like to, to talk about is that they they're a lot of them are for lack of better words products of their environment they were born into a certain lifestyle they were born without options foster homes you know where you have to defend yourself where you're just moved around you learn to become a certain kind of person right from there to juvie from juvie to jail or to prison and where do you go from there you go to the streets and then you just start shuffling back and forth between them and it's a continual cycle because also nobody wants to give these people a, a, a chance of any sort. You know, I, this is another thing I come up against. Why don't they get a job? Do you want to hire them? I'm not hiring them. Well, who do you expect to, you know, you know, our reform is, you know, prison reform is a whole other thing. Uh, they're just continually set up to fail and then they're continually criminalized for it. And, if you just take a second and get to know them and get to understand them a little, which is what I hope to do through my work, you realize why they are in the situations they are in, or even sometimes the reason they behave that they do. I'm not saying that some of the crimes, I've met murderers down there. I've met some people down there, you know, and as as I've gotten to know them, I'm like, okay, I understand where you were at in your life when that happened, which I didn't understand before. You know, you were brought up in a whole different world than we are, and it's it's beyond baffling to me when people sit, you know, from these nice homes in these nice neighborhoods with where they've had these nice opportunities and things handed to them for all sorts of reasons. And they can sit there and be like, why don't they just do this? And why don't they just do that? Like, because they were never given the opportunity. And still to this day, you're not even extending that to them now. And the notion of thinking about them, you're not even aware of that. You're repeating exactly that cycle of not allowing them to come up any further than they already are. You're keeping them down. And, uh, you know, long way to go, but hopefully again, I mean, that's kind of what I'm, I'm, I'm really aiming high to do is I, w- I want to break down some of these barriers, but I don't want to make anybody feel, this is another thing that's important to me through my work. I want anybody to be able to come to, to come look at it. And I don't, I don't care about your, where you are, your, your political party, your, you know, your lot in life, whatever it is. I, I just want it to be accessible to everyone. And to learn something from that about their fellow human beings and, and, you know, more decisively for what I'm doing, the people who live on the streets, um, get to know them a little bit, get to understand them a little bit. And once you do, you know, it's, it's harder not to care about somebody or something when you actually know, you know, where it's coming from, and that it has feelings and, and uh, yeah, it's, but again, it's a lo- long way to go, but... It, I, it's, it's sometimes hard to keep my frustration in, but I, I really, I never want to come across as the shoving something down someone's throat or an angry person in my work. Cause I don't like when people do that either. 
you know it's yeah a, it turns me off when somebody's just like this is how it is and this is how you should be i'm like oh i like information i like to decide for myself and i'm not telling anybody how to feel i'm just giving you the information of what's there but i'm i'm hopefully pulling back the veil a little bit and letting you see a little further inside i want to talk a little bit more about about your friends here and and give uh some context and, and humanize some of these people a little bit there's an image of artist kenneth ross can you tell us a little about kenneth yeah kenneth um is from oh, I have the top of my head I want to say Milwaukee but um he he's an artist who's been living in on in Skid Row um for I think a couple years now but he was like a pro football player excuse me not pro he played uh football in college and and then he started painting about 3 or 4 years ago and then uh a woman who works for the foundation named Natty Jackson um Actually, we were down there one day just, just doing some work, foundation work, and she saw him carrying a painting and was like, hey, it's, it's a beautiful painting. Uh, what do you do with that painting? And he was like, he's like, uh, I want, I'm trying to sell it. And she's like, uh, okay. And then we found out where his tent was, and we're like, we'll be, come back. You know, We were doing some other stuff. So we go back over. Beautiful paintings. I'm kind of blown away by it. I'm looking at this guy's work and I'm like, wow, this guy's living on the, the street. Like <laughs> this is like our, our next Basquiat or something. Um, so we bought a painting from him and, and then Natty really started to for, form a relationship with him. Um, she started going down there and meeting with him. And then, uh, you know, when she'd go do work for the foundation, she'd go visit him. And then she just continued to visit with him more and more. And finally, you know, she's showing me these, these paintings and I was like, these are incredible, you know, someone should help them, uh, like sell them, get them out there. Of course she was like, she wanted to do that. Um, you know, and I'll repost for her, but on her, her, uh, Instagram page, she started putting up his paintings and they sell really fast. I think she just put up a new one today actually. Um, which is the best one I've seen him do yet. But, uh, yeah. So Kenneth is, you know, he went to college. He, he went to school to do film, um, and he told me the story. I think I, I I did write about it on my Instagram account, but like his his grandparents were killed by the Ku Klux Klan in front of his his father, and his father, you know, grew up telling him still, don't hate white people. <laughs> like, don't yeah. let that hate overcome you. You know, you're gonna meet some good people and you're gonna meet some bad people. Um, and it just kind of blew me away to to have seen something so hor- horrific in life and to still be able to like rise above that and he was telling me like his family you know where he grew up was really poor I mean, and they would have people over you know that's kind of how it works in poor neighborhoods i don't know where you guys grew up i grew up kind of poor too there's whoever's at the table you know like yeah. poor people seem to extend themselves more that way it's like you got food everybody comes over and eats and some someday I'll be at your house. Someday it'll be at mine. And kind of said it'd be you know it'd be white kids, black kids, it'd be whoever, whoever the parents, whoever the kids were hanging out with. And uh, and he just carried that on. But yeah, now he's he's down there. I know he he talked about getting back into school. He's a writer too. If you speak with Kenneth, and this is one of those things too. You you feel like you're talking to like a college professor. He's so intelligent and well spoken. And just kind of like hones in on things, and he's so focused. Uh, he kind of blows my mind. And he he just found he just realized that he was like an artist like four years ago, and it's just kind of exploding into it. But he's just another one of those overlooked like stories in Skid Row that are they're just amazing. There's so many amazing people down there that you know it's it's baffling. A lot of talented people yeah. down there. And just so people know, um, I forget the, what's the uh, Instagram. I'm looking for it, but I can't find it. The Instagram page of, of the of the lady where you can p- possibly purchase some of his work. Oh, her Instagram is. Oh, it's actually, what's up? I'm Natty. <laughs> okay, uh, what's up? I'm Natty. Yeah. What's so up? you could look for her if you're interested in, in purchasing yeah. and helping out. Um, yeah. Okay, she- and I'll obviously have links below, but just in case somebody's listening and and they're just catching a, a glimpse of this, I want to make sure that they know. Um, let's talk about your post from January 3rd, um, Jerry. Oh, okay. Uh, Jerry, uh, I, well, I met Jerry probably seven, maybe even 10 years ago. Um, wow. 
Yeah, so a lot of people... Jerry was kind of one of those people in Skid Row that you... Or in, in downtown LA, as well as Skid Row, that he just... He stands out. And the reason he, he stands out is because... Well, one, because of his personality, but because he was shot in the face at point blank range with the shotgun and he survived it. So, you know, his he, he, his head's deformed because of it. Um, he can barely see out of one eye. He could barely see out of one eye. and But he, he'd been around for years and, uh, you know, if he met Jerry, he would just he would just be so upbeat and positive about what happened to him and thankful that he still was alive. One of those people that kind of reminded you on a bad day, like I have nothing to be stressed or upset about because yeah. on my worst of worst days, this guy's day could be a hundred times worse and he's in, in the best mood ever. Uh, but Jerry did pass away a few weeks ago. Um, I know he had C COPD. Is that how you say it? And uh, I don't know if he got Corona, but, I know that he was trying to stay off the streets when it was hitting. And, you know, the last I heard uh, was that his family was having an autopsy done. And I've reached out. And I still haven't gotten any further news yet about that. I'm going to post it when I find out more. But, yeah, he was he was just sort of a, just a well-known person in Skid Row and, and downtown L.A. Um, I, I just got two more people here. Caroline from post uh, January 29th, 2020. Um, Caroline, who's 49 and starting over. I don't know Caroline as well as I know other people um, down there, but she, um, I know that she, she is a street worker, you know, a sex worker, excuse me. And um, I think she was the one who told, told me about uh, loan sharks. Well, one of the many people, but. Um, yeah, what you have that in your post. Okay. So what, uh, uh, what happens a lot down there is, especially when you have a, a bad drug addiction people down there get like gr which is i think it stands for government relief and you get so much money a month well when you can't um you know hustle enough money for your fix you go to a, like a street shark and a street shark will give you you know if you borrow a hundred dollars you owe them like 150 or 200 dollars it's insane the amounts they want a lot of time what they'll do is they'll just take your gr card from you and just spend it until you're caught back up but, uh, right. yeah, you know, honestly, I, I don't know her as well as other people, but I know a hundred Carolines at the same time. Um, yeah, sadly, there's a lot of girls down there who are, you know, they're there for different reasons, but they get women in, in Skid Row are, are taken advantage of and preyed upon more than anyone else. It's, it's the worst thing I do have to, to see down there, you know, and just to be really honest, you know, rape happens down there quite a bit at, a, at an alarming rate you know people go into these tents you think about it and to get protection they might you know stay with a man to protect to feel protected but a lot of those times those men won't protect them either now there are some great guys down there too so i, I don't want to mince it but um but i see it happen a lot and 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 they think that they're they're being protected but often they're just being taken advantage of and also those men are hit them too and there's a weird code down there where when a man will hit a woman a lot of the time men down there will, will other men will turn a blind eye you know they right. don't they don't get into someone else's business you know sadly I, I i understand the kind of the rules of the street i don't agree with them but you know you, you sometimes you have to stay out of other people's business just not to create more trouble for yourself but sometimes you have to interfere because that's just the right thing to do and put yourself at risk. Also, the police down there, you know, women who are taking advantage of report it to the police, and it's not taken very seriously. And I don't know the reason for that. I don't know if they're overwhelmed with it or they just don't care. But, you know, another female, I think her name's Whitney, I posted about, told me uh, she was raped like the, seven times by seven different men the first month living in Skid Row. And, and she was able to identify one of the men in the lineup. Well, nothing happened mm -hmm. except that she went back to the street and now she's basically a mark down there. She's like a target. And yeah. and she's put herself in so much danger and who the police don't help her. No one on the street are going to help her. And now she's just going to be, you know, abused and preyed upon more down there. And, and sadly, her, her drug addiction anchors her to the street still. And because of that addiction, yeah. she doesn't walk away from this horrible mess that, it, that she's in. And that happens quite often.
I can imagine there's women with with mental health issues too that if they get raped they they whether they don't remember it or they don't know who I mean it's just a, it's just an ongoing cycle that I can imagine that just is is the, yeah and how actually I can't imagine I say I can imagine but I can't I can't either it, it, but just how almost desensitized people are who live down there for that to happen um just so frequently for how common it is for how how women will talk to me about it you know i've had women say to me it's just it's not a matter of if it's a matter of when and i i just i can't believe that even with the foundation you know one of the our our aims is to is to work with with women you know to put that at the forefront of everything we want to do we want to help everybody but you got to put someone at the forefront and i strongly feel that it should be women yeah um, the, the last one here is, is Joe and Betty. Um, it's a post from June 20th, uh, June 24th, 2020. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's called love on skid row. <clears throat> yeah. Well, those, they were such a wonderful couple, uh, Joe and Betty. Uh, I don't think his name was really Joe. Um, I think he just yeah. repeated my name back to me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, but that, you know, I don't, again, I don't know Have to I take people for what they say down there. I don't know the names, sure. but yeah, you know, a few things with that couple. I mean, she definitely suffered for some mental health issues and they were, uh, they looked after each other, you know, he, he looked out for her and she looked out for him. Uh, and it definitely had, you know, it has its difficulties. I think it, him looking after her would prevent him from working a lot because he was telling me, you know, when he would go to work, sometimes she would just give away their stuff just not really aware of what she's doing and also she she's she's a beautiful woman you know i mean Mm -hmm. in a picture she might be dirty but it doesn't take much imagination to imagine what she'd look like you know cleaned up and and women down men down there would you know take advantage of her so he he felt like he couldn't be at work because he loves this woman and he has to look look out for her but because of her mental health issues um she she's down there too i think she's i don't know if i wrote about it or not but she, she was ki- oh, yeah. kidnapped is did i write about that in that post i don't know if you wrote about she kidnapped but you talk about the the um the fact that she kind of let her hygiene go to kind of uh, oh you know right here it says Prevent uh herself yeah suffer, oh yeah she was uh she suffered a head injury from her kidnapper so she was kidnapped when she was uh, betty is a college graduate who was kidnapped eight years ago and brought here by a sex trafficker she suffered a head injury from her kidnapper, and now she says she can't think as clear. Yeah, and I don't know what happened in that injury. I'm, I would imagine that's part of what keeps her down there. Uh, but that it's caused some, honestly, maybe some sort of some brain damage or something. Um, cause she kind of f- floats in and out of, um, you know, being being like holding a conversation, and then kind of, you know, it seems like her thoughts are me- meandering, but. She did tell me a story, and and Joe helped tell me too that she was kidnapped and brought uh, brought down to Skid Row, you know. And it sounds crazy, but I've heard other people tell me the same story too. You know, somebody will get kidnapped from Venice Beach and brought to Skid Row, or vice versa, or these different areas, and it's all for sex trafficking. And a lot of people are like, "Why don't they just leave? Why don't they just walk away?" But you don't understand what the fear that they prey upon certain people, and especially somebody with mental health issues. You don't feel like you can ever walk away. It's a psychological game, and, and they they make them feel so in fear of their lives that they don't feel like they can reach out to their family or the police or anyone, and and they're kind of imprisoned in their own minds because of it, and it happens just far too often. And and it, yeah, it's, I tell people these stories, and like that's I don't believe it. You don't believe it because of the situation you live in. But live in a situation right. like that, and you know, and these things are more than possible. They happen on, on kind of a regular basis. All right. How how often are you down there? Um, it varies. I try to go down there. You know, sometimes I'm down there seven days a week, sometimes five, and then if if I have some things come up in life, then you know I don't get down there, but maybe once or twice a week. But uh, I I try to go down there. I mean, I, I like to go down there every day when I can. Uh, the last few months, I had to slow it down because of um, the virus, and more of I had more of a fear of me bringing it to Skid Row. 
So when I'd go down there, then I'd have to come home and kind of quarantine myself. So I started just going once a week and then trying to get, get a test before I went back down. Um, yeah, so I know I just got the vaccine, actually. Um, but uh, but that doesn't mean I still can't bring it down there. So I, I just kind of sure. right now I have to slow it down. And it kind of it kind of kills me because, like, I'm always there mentally if I'm not there physically. Yeah. There's one other, um, I, I don't think I wrote down the actual page, but there's, a, there's an image of a man uh, cooking uh, chickens. And you talk about how John uh, John. You know, he was going back and forth. John John. Yeah. So I just want to maybe close with that story because it, it, kind of, it kind of hits on the communal aspect of the community that you're a part of now. Yeah. Um, well, you want to just tell us the story of the night or what? It, Oh, uh, sure. However you feel. Well, yeah. So John John is just another, uh, uh, some, and for, I'm sorry, just for people at home, this is, uh, September 5th, 2019. So you got to scroll down if you haven't already scrolled down a little bit, but it's an amazing image of, uh, John John hunched over a, a, a makeshift, uh, stove. Yeah. There's actually a more recent one too. Um, it's not that far okay. back. It's, uh, December 2nd of this year. Oh, last year. Excuse me. Um, and then, Oh, is that the one you're talking about? Or there's one further back too? Anyways, sorry. Uh, that was the one further back, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, but it, it's... Uh... So, I, w- you know, I was out there... Oh, yeah, no, it's two different images. Yeah, so the one you're talking about was posted on December 2nd. Yeah. So... But uh, John John, um, you know, people down there, it is a community, and people do really look out for each other too, despite some of these grim things I've been talking about. Um, and, you know, John John was given a bunch of uh, chicken... So he just started cooking it up, and while he's cooking it up, everybody's a lot of people were coming by, and and this is the thing that happens a lot, you know. I, I think we in in our world, I, I call it the outside world, like you know, we're very we're always thinking about like uh, tomorrow, next month, and a year. Is that like job security, retirement, your f- refrigerator? People in Skid Row live literally in the moment because they're forced to live in the moment. And when they have something like food, it's like, this food's going to go bad. Let's share it. And today it might be, you know, John John making food for somebody. The next day it might be his neighbor. But, but yeah, that night while we were filming him, um, or excuse me, taking photos, he, uh, there was like, I guess like something, a, a fight broke out down the street. I saw like a dog kind of jump out at somebody. And Skid Row at night becomes a different place, much, much more terrifying than during the day. And uh, I was like, oh, that's kind of, you know, something's, something's going on down there. But I, I just wanted to stay and I wanted to watch the whole process and hang out. And then I saw like some guys run by with baseball bats. And I was like, OK, I, something is definitely going on down there. And then I just heard a gunshot and everybody dispersed. Um, and then I was like, I don't think I should stick around anymore. And I'd, I'd already been there for like five or six hours because I was st- hanging out with them the whole day through the process. But then. But then I, I had to leave, you know, so, yeah. yeah. Do you have, like, a, a mom or a dad or a girlfriend that's, or, a, or a boyfriend that's like, dude, what, you got to, like, stop going down there? Uh, not anymore. Yeah, a lot in the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had a lot of people early on, um, you know, say, don't go so much or be careful. And they still say that, but I think everybody realizes that my mind's pretty made up about what I'm going to do and where I'm going to go. And, uh, you know, they just say, you know, best of luck, be careful. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, a lot of times, especially with imagery like this, it's it's like, it's us, you know, looking in Mm -hmm. and, you know, you have this image, uh, right here of the bike shop. And, um, and you're inside looking out oh, yeah. and he's kind of peering back into the tent. And, you know, for me, this image is so powerful because it's them looking at us, you know, as opposed to us looking at them. Right. And, um, I think, I think this is just a, it's just indicative of your work and, and what you're doing. And, you know, personally, I just want to thank you not only for your time, but just for what you're doing, because there's so few people in this world that would put themselves in this situation. And, um, 
you know, if they did put themselves in this situation, you know, they'd be like, man, I was documenting for like a whole month down there, you know, like, whew. right. <laughs> but you know, it's something that you've been doing that, you know, it's only a story that can be told when you put in the work and you've definitely put in the work and without you, you know, you're putting yourself in harm's way, whether it's, it's catching a disease or whether it's, it's getting shot or whether it's, you know, getting mixed up in the wrong thing. And, and, you know, it's just a variable. The more you, you go down there, the higher the probability of something happening to you. And I'm not trying to make you sound like a savior because I know that's not what you want to hear, but what needs to be done? Well, it goes a little bit back to, um, you know, what we were talking about with mental health. There's a lot of things that can be done. And yeah, it's a lot to unpack, but I'll get through it as quickly as possible. Here's what I always tell people, you know, don't try to do everything. Just try to do something. Um, tomorrow it might be stopping at a, at a stoplight and you see somebody and you, and you give them a, I don't know, an extra sweatshirt in your car cause it's cold or, or your, your lunch that gets them through the day. And you know what? That's what you can do. Do that. If you have some old things in your house, great. If you have some bigger resources and you can get involved with helping people get medical care, uh, great. Or if you can help advocate for, for things things that can really make change. And that's where, you know, I'm learning, you know, if you really want to fight these kinds of things, you, you got to get involved. You got to get involved in with the city council or you got to, or at least help sway the opinions of people who are involved in these things who actually make these decisions when it comes to budget spending and, and, and our, you know, it's, it's called like the Los Angeles homeless crisis budget. And like these things can make a difference. They just need the people who are, who actually have the power to to make these decisions? That you know they need to to understand the the impact of their decisions and what they're really able to do, and and I hope to reach them to that. But for anybody and everybody, you know, don't don't overwhelm yourself because a lot of people don't even get up to bat because they psych themselves out. Like just start small, just do what you can. You'll find your way. It's not going to be the same for everybody. We're all going to pick our different battles in life. Uh, how far you take it, you know, this might not be your full on crusade, but you know, just try to look after your neighbor and be compassionate and treat them the way you'd want to be treated or the way you'd want them to treat your family members, you know, or somebody that you care about, treat them the same way. Uh, yeah. So there's all different levels, you know, it changes. It's different for everyone, but, um, I think what really matters is that people start becoming aware that it's a problem collectively and become a voice for that collectively. And, and, it'll, and it could start moving in the right direction. And obviously, Suitcase Joe Foundation, spelled out, .org, is, is a good place to start, right, Joe? I hope so, yeah. Uh, yeah, we're, our goal, we're providing wraparound services for people on, like, a higher level to fully get people off the street. Uh, and that, that is, you know, that could be job training, getting them into housing, mental health, uh, counseling, whatever it is. It's long-term. It's not short-term. And then we do uh, street stuff, too, which street distributions, which is kind of the short-term thing, just giving people shoes and clothes and food and, you know, whatever else they need. So we're, we're trying to kind of attack it at all levels. That's amazing. And, and um, I just want to, when you mentioned, you know, uh, you know, giving, giving, you know, maybe you have an extra sandwich or, or I noticed you didn't say, uh, you know, just give them a couple bucks here. Is, is it, is it more beneficial to, to give them actual clothes or food or something like that, as opposed to just giving them some money? Uh, I have a different opinion on that. I, I say give them money, but uh, give them whatever yeah. they need. And if they're using that money to buy drugs, yeah. then let them go buy drugs because that might be keeping them from getting yeah. sick for the night or dealing with their mental health issues. Uh, I understand right. there's nothing's ever black and white, but uh, let them make their own decisions. You know, People need more than, than food. And, and also, sometimes I feel like if somebody's sleeping in a tent on a sidewalk every night, if they want to... You know, if they're going to use drugs, they're, they're going to use drugs and it might help them get through that night. Now, I know not everybody agrees with that, but, uh, you know, there's other ways to reach out to them to help them change. But we, you can't make every decision for every person. You can't hold their hand through everything. All you can do is present the best, you know, give them some options for once. And uh, and hopefully somebody treating them that way will, will make them start to see some things that they hadn't seen in the outside world and maybe themselves for once. Yeah. Compassion. We can all use a little bit more compassion. Definitely. I really appreciate your time, Joe. Is there anything that, um, you wanted to say that maybe we didn't touch on or, or, or anything else you want to, um, 
you know, point people towards that they can help out. I mean, I know the suitcase Joe foundation.org is, is a good place to start. And also too, you know, um, your book that, that I, I purchased is like a portion of that goes to the suitcase Joe foundation. So that's also, I want you to look out for sidewalk champions, skid row street photography photos by suitcase Joe. I want everybody to look out for that too. Um, but is there anything maybe we left out? No, that's great. You it, say or and here's like? what I always tell people too. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be the Suitcase Joe Foundation. Just just find the thing that, that you're excited about and get get involved with that, you know. Um, it, it could be anywhere. Um, I think it just really starts with just just start. Start small, but just get out there and, and, and get going on it. Just find somebody. Uh, find the cause that you care about that ignites you and, and just put a foot forward and, and let it begin. That's awesome, Joe. Listen, man, I really appreciate yeah, your thank time. You for having I really me. appreciate your work. If I see a guy walking around on camera in Skid Row, I'll, I'll uh, say what's up. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Good luck. <laughs> Thanks, Amir. Thanks, right, man. Have a good one. If you found this episode inspiring, please subscribe, like, leave a comment. And if you know someone that would find this conversation useful, please share. Your support is greatly appreciated as we build the Shoot Wisely community. Thank you. This episode of the Shoot Wisely podcast is sponsored by Metric 9 Productions. At Metric 9 Productions, your story is our passion. And I should know because it's my company. This episode of the Shoot Wisely podcast is also sponsored by DTLA Culture. DTLA Culture, uncovering DTLA one story and image at a time. Thank you for listening to the Shoot Wisely podcast. I'm your host, Amir Brahimi.